Greetings, greetings once again to all my enemies and all my friends. That's right, it's the Weekly Worldview. I am your host, Doug McBurney. Welcome back. It's the show where we don't take calls, we don't tolerate sponsors, but we do help you focus on the events of the week through the lens of original thought. And we begin this week right here in the science, really, file, where the post-millennial reports that the Climate Commission The Climate Commission, which is a group of eminent global leaders, is recommending a strategy to reduce the risks associated with global warming. Yeah, that's right. We have a group of eminent global leaders. They have a strategy. One concept that they are considering is the dimming of the sun. Okay, stop right there. So we have a group of eminent global leaders who say that they are considering dimming the sun in order to help with uh, global climate change. So, you know, in times past, the elite insisted that we worship the sun. That's right. Certain ancient cultures. Now they claim that they are the masters of the sun, which might be worse than worshiping the sun and asking us to. What's worse, asking us to worship the sun or insisting to us that they can master the sun? I think maybe the latter is more dangerous because let's just say it implies a little too much confidence in the eminent global leaders on the Climate Commission, whatever that is, wherever that is, whoever they are. The post-millennial reminds us that way back in 2011, popular science looked at the proposal from the eminent global leaders and argued that it was not a good idea, which is kind of embarrassing that popular science would would entertain the idea that the masters of the universe have have mastery over the sun. But they did, and they said that the odds of miscalculation are high for such an endeavor, and unintended devastating consequences could be incalculable. So nobody questioned the idea that uh, human beings can dim the sun, which I just questioned that idea outright i'm just going to say it right here i have some doubts that even eminent global leaders can dim the sun and i'm not going to get into their uh harebrained crackpot ideas for how they might do that because it's just stupid and we're just going to move on out of the science really file and from there we go from uh, from one global warming uh, pot into, should I go right to, well, wait a second. Before I go to Canada, now that we're talking about global warming, I have to, well, we'll come back to global warming. How about that? Let's first, let's talk about 
draft. Well, a victory of sorts in the widespread tyranny file. We have another random act in a mindless system. David Palowski and his brother, Artur, the preachers up in Calgary, they have, well, they appealed their convictions as they were duly convicted for acting like free human beings and Christians in Canada, which was made illegal sometime in 2020. They appealed their convictions, asked for their fines to be reimbursed. You remember they were ruled in contempt of COVID-19. I'm sorry, in contempt of the Alberta Health Health Services. That's right. They were sentenced to three days in jail. Uh, Artur was fined twenty thousand Canadian dollars. His brother was fined ten thousand. That's something less than American dollars, but uh, still a lot of money. They were ordered to pay the Alberta Health Service. They were ordered to pay the government who threw them in jail um, over fifteen thousand dollars as well. Well, in, in their appeal, they argued that they could not be found in contempt of an injunction that was not made against them specifically, and the Alberta Court of Appeals determined that the language used in the injunction created ambiguity, and all that comes around, if you're not a lawyer, to saying that their convictions were set aside, their fines were reimbursed, and even Alberta Health, The government, communist dictators who threw the men in jail were ordered to return the 15 grand. And so the legal team comes out and says, this is a great victory. But sensible, logical people who are not lawyers, they notice that the court did not rule that Alberta Health had overstepped its authority by throwing Christian ministers in jail for preaching during a during a, a, a health emergency that was obviously fake by that time. I mean, the emergency was fake. This idea that the hospitals were going to be overrun and there were going to bo- be bodies stinking in the streets. It was so obviously fake by then with the masks and the six feet. And it was all so anyway. So the court did not rule that the Alberta health had overstepped its authority. And that in a genuine emergency, this type of authority is not necessary. They didn't rule any of that. The court didn't rule that in retrospect, this was all dictatorial and horrifying and we're sorry it ever happened. No, they didn't rule any of that. Because if you remember, by the time these two brothers were prosecuted, I mean, I've already said it. It was obvious that the government had overstepped their bounds, but. But will any governing agency ever admit they ever made a mistake again if we let them get away with this? No, they will not. We cannot let these bastards get away with what they did. We cannot let them get away with it. And to call this a victory is, it was a financial, uh, uh, I guess you could call it a financial, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. It's not a victory. Because nobody said they were sorry and nobody was wrong. And so until the people who did this are arrested themselves, then uh, justice has not been served. All right, I'm getting upset now. So let's go to San Clemente, California, which is one of the last bastions of conservatism uh, north of uh, the South Pole, north of... 
anyway, it's one of the last bastions of conservatism in California. And one of the student council members out there, Steve-O, Steve uh, wanted to introduce a discussion about possibly voting on a resolution to ban abortion in San Clemente, in the city of San Clemente, California. He just wanted to have a discussion about it. And so he brought it to the student council's attention. And the mayor, who's also on the student council there, he voted to allow a discussion about the possibility of maybe perhaps voting on banning abortion back in July. So student council member Steve brought it. The mayor uh, seconded the motion. And so there was going to be a discussion until the mayor found out what was in the the mayor found out he was being asked to have a discussion about possibly abolishing abortion in San Clemente. And when he found out that was the case, he called an emergency session last Saturday to vote against even a discussion of such a thing. Because to vote on even discussing it, the mayor called, uh, he said it looked like it was written by a Taliban tribunal. So the idea of discussing a ban on abortion is the equivalent of Taliban politics to the mayor of San Clemente uh, there on the student council. He apologized for supporting it. And listen to what he said. This is the mayor of San Clemente. First of all, he said, I'm pro-life. Of course, that's what he said. Don't think I'm not pro-life just because I don't want to even discuss the possibility of that. That doesn't mean I'm pro not pro-life. Look, I'll show you. I'll prove it. Uh, the mayor of San Clemente goes on to say there are different shades of pro-choice and there are different shades of pro-life. And if this document means I'm not pro-life, then I'm not pro-life. So he said, I am pro-life. And then he said some other words. And at the end, he said he's not pro-life. And so by accident, this politician at the end of his word salad ended up speaking the truth. He's not pro-life. Because being pro-life in America today means being not pro-life. In fact, I'm going to read this. I had a discussion with a couple lawyer friends of mine, high-powered attorneys, uh, Ivy League-level attorneys. I had, a, I had a discussion with them about uh, the Dobbs decision. They think I'm a bit too pessimistic. They think, but well, they, uh, they said, Doug, you're accentuating the negative. What you really need to do is overlook the negative, and we need to accentuate the positive. That's a better strategy. And so they sent me a couple of emails. These are very bright, intelligent young men. I said, it's good to hear from you. I thank God for both of you, especially your families, who are your living testimonies for God's glory. That's the main thing I wanted to say to him in the email. The politics aside, the, the legal wrangling, whatever. But basically, I had pointed out to them that I think the Dobbs ruling hurts our side. Our side being... The personhood movement, the abolition movement, those of us who believe that there is an, an inalienable right to life. You know, like the founding fathers. Eh, if, if they mean anything. I mean, if you even consider. Anyway, but they said, no, Doug, letting people know that, uh, that the. Uh, anyway, I said the fact that. Uh, well, I'll just read you the email. I'll shut up and read you the email. I said, gentlemen, to gloss over the fact that the Supreme Court has returned. The right to kill children to the states is like asserting that, well, other than, you know, toward the end, Mrs. Lincoln appears to have enjoyed the play. 
The banner headline opinion is that the right to kill children not only exists, but that it existed before Roe, and that it was unconstitutionally administered by the judiciary for a time, but now the right to kill children is quite sensibly being returned to the states. That's the banner headline. The right to kill children is being returned to the states. Whether you're a housewife or a plumber or a lawyer or a legislator, that's the banner headline in my opinion. The right to kill children existed and now we're returning it. So I went on to my lawyer friends. A review of the pro-life proposals being promoted in the wake of Dobbs, which I linked to three of them, the top headlines. Pro-life law, personhood, this and that, banning abortion. I said, all of these, a review of all of these reveals one thing they all have in common, and that is the absence of the inalienable right to life. And that is now the pro-life position. The pro-life position is now that there is no inalienable right to life, and that is even more than before Dobbs. And before Dobbs, that was, it was atrocious what had happened to the pro-life industry movement, my foot, an industry. I went on, gentlemen, implication, I'm sorry, gentlemen, Dobbs implication terribly hurts our side. You can call the return dicta if you like, but if the dicta fits, dot, dot, dot. They're lawyers, so I use uh, some Latin words. Uh, it's actual, in actual practice, gentlemen, in actual practice, the Dobbs ruling hardens the people our side might influence and negates our side finally and absolutely, at least as far as politics and law. Gentlemen, now that the right to life has been finally and supremely banished from the debate, God is banished as well, which I think differentiates our situation from that of Wilberforce's England in the slavery debate. There can now be no Christian-led civil end to abortion. Instead, what will be required is a catastrophic judgment that scares the hell out of everyone. The nations had their chance and they rejected it and have hardened even more since. My concern now is that some might find Christ and be saved through the fire to come. And that precludes me from playing dress up any longer with optics and strategery and politics and the law. I love you both immensely. And if they're listening, I just want you to know I'm just a straight up preacher now. I don't think this is a politically solvable situation any longer. I'm just trying to uh, warn people. Color me Isaiah or something like that, I would hope. All right, so uh, uh, San Clemente, I finished with San Clemente. We're finished with San Clemente. Oh, by the way, the, the mayor of San Clemente, he was so freaked out about this resolution to ban abortion in San Clemente. But even that, in the wake of Dobbs, even the strictest ban on abortion included... An exception for pregnancies where the mother's life is threatened or the child is conceived out of rape because even the city council members who wanted to ban abortion insisted that they were neutral on those type of issues. Why? Because the Supreme Court has effectively abolished the right to life.
Worldview. It's the Weekly Worldview. When I go back and I listen to uh, the, the music, I think to myself, self, did we really think that we could do all of that and behave in that way for all of those years and that everything was going to be okay? I mean, do you think we would get, do you think we could get from the uh, progressive women's voters movement with the bonnets all the way to the uh, music to kill your teacher and yourself by by the 1990s in that in that less than one century? Did we think we could do all that and everything would be okay? It should have been obvious quite a long time ago. I apologize that I missed all that. I wish I had done better. In fact, I want to uh, I want to send a memo out to, uh, well, I, I suppose I'll just say, I want to send a memo out to uh, Tucker Carlson. Um, because Tucker and I are about the same age. And I just want to say to Tucker, and everyone who watches Tucker, that you know what, Tucker, you come out with some fantastic information. I mean, I hear and I learn about things on Tucker's show that I didn't know about that have significant implications for the future of Western civilization, my family, and all of that, and America. But Tucker, when you lament the collapse of America and the coming catastrophe, stop prefacing your lament with the Democrat Party, the Democrat Party, the Democrat Party. When you want to examine why it is America has fallen, Tucker... You need to look in the mirror. And me too. I need to look in the mirror. It's our fault. It's not the Democrat Party's fault. The Democrat Party are a bunch of nakedly ambitious, greedy, lying thieves and murderers. They were always just waiting in the wings, being restrained by the behavior of you and I. Tucker, it's we who failed. It's not the Democrat Party. It's we who need to repair and repent and adjust and do better and I'll just move on but we need some good news we we and and believe it or not for, for for good news we have to go to the queering of australia file where the queering of australia is in full force where the government wants everyone in in australia to bend one knee get down on one knee and pin a rainbow button it through your flesh, I think, is what the requirement is. Yes, pin the button through your flesh and repeat after me. Anyway, it's, so the queering of Australia is going on. And down in, in Australia, rugby is quite the thing. And they have a rugby league that's called the Manly Rugby League. The Manly Rugby. <laughs> it's called the Manly Rugby League, where manly men play rugby. And and the the team members of the Manly Rugby League were ordered to wear a gay pride jersey, and a number of the stars of the league are in open revolt and refuse to wear a gay pride uh, jersey. And so, I I don't know, but I, I perhaps they've all been shot, taken out behind the stadium and shot. But anyway, it was it was encouraging. 
So the news story from SlayNews.com, they don't quote any of the famous stars in Open Rebellion. They don't give any of them a platform to say why it is that homos make them sick and they don't want to put on a rainbow jersey that implies that, you know, I don't want to imply I go for that sort of thing for crying out loud. But they don't. none of them are quoted, but one of the former stars of the league, Ian, is quoted. Ian came out as gay during his playing days, and he's been an advocate of, you know, all of that plus the jersey, okay? He's the one who wanted everyone to wear the ribbon. Put on the ribbon. Put on the jersey. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He's Australian. Put on the jersey, mate. Who's not wearing the jersey? <laughs> anyway, the fag says, quote, I expected there would be some sort of religious pushback. Religious pushback, you know. Those religious people always pushing back. Uh, it hasn't totally shocked me like it's shocking everyone else. So... Uh, the reporters, the government, everyone in Australia that is now a, an, a Australia is officially a, a tyrannical communist dictatorship run by sex perverts. That's what Australia collapsed into in less than two years. And so everyone's shocked that there's still men who don't want to wear the ribbon. They don't want to wear the fag logo. They're sh everyone's shocked. The league is shocked. The reporters are shocked. The government is shocked. And, of course, a homo assumes everyone is shocked, right? And now, uh, you know, with the social media, everybody generally plays along. But the fact is, there might only be two or people. I'm sorry. But the fact is, there might only be two or three people making up the news and all this social media backlash. It's like this fag and two other people. But they're all on social media, so everyone assumes that everyone is shocked that there are normal men who don't want to wear the ribbon. Well, I'm just here to tell you that that may not be the case. Stop letting the 1% drag society to hell. And just stand up and say, homos make me sick, and I'm not going to wear your ribbon. I'm not going to put your logo, I'm not going to pierce my body and bow the knee to you people. And if enough of us would stand up, other people might look around and say, oh, I'm not the only one who felt uncomfortable with all of that. And maybe we could, uh, I mean, before they sodomize everybody, couldn't we just stand up and tell them stop? All right. Meanwhile, speaking of faggots and tyrannical sex pervert dictators, we go now to the Imagine Civil War file. Where a John Hickenlooper, yeah, he made a speech. John Hickenlooper, the former, uh, a former, uh, I don't know, he's like a former dope dealer and, and mayor of Denver. And possibly he was the governor of Colorado before that office was vacated. Hick Hickenlooper made a speech talking about the, the billions and billions. I mean, I have a figure here. Nobody knows what it is, actually. The Democratic Party and the Republicans... Some of their Republican friends are currently trying to pass. It's a, a, approximately a trillion dollar spending package with about 400 billion dedicated to address climate. Just wait, just let that sink in. I mean, you never want to draw a politician 
You never want to give them too broad of an authority, but this bill says that this is to address climate. To me, that's too broad. Um, anyway, uh, Hickenlooper says, look, with three, four hundred billion dollars, we're going to address the climate in every facet, every facet. And he calls this current bill, which may or may not be passed by the time you hear this. I don't see anything that stops it. Uh, they say someone might catch COVID and that could stop it. I think it's more likely that since it's the Senate, it's someone could catch monkeypox and actually not be able to make it because of the oozing, festering sores. I think that's more likely. But anyway, uh, this uh, John Hickenluber says this bill, where we're going to spend all this money to address the climate, he says this is the first step. This is not the end. Oh, you don't have to say that, John. We're aware of that. He says it's the first step of what will be a long, forced march that we're all going to have to work together on. Okay, uh, but it allows us to imagine a successful outcome. So, John, let me just tell you that the word forced march, that's not a good choice of words <laughs> for a radical communist dictator like you. Because there are people uh, around, some of us who remember uh, what the forced marches uh, were. So you've got a forced march when you're in the military. You're forced to march somewhere because you have to go there and you fight or die or whatever you have to do. Uh, but then there are then there are the forced marches of the Nazi and Soviet eras, where millions of people were forced marched to their deaths. And John Hickenlooper says this is the beginning of a long forced march, which we're all going to have to work on together, as if he's going to be on the march too. He, but he won't. He'll be in a limousine or by a pool or in a private jet. Um, or at the back of a gay bar. But he will not be on the forced march with you and I. I can assure you of that. And John, uh, don't imagine a successful outcome. The, the forced march allows us to imagine a successful outcome. So John Hickenlooper has an idea of what you can think about when you're on the forced march. Yes, when they stick the AK-47 in your ribs and say, Michelle! You can imagine a successful outcome, a world without global warming. Anyway, folks... I hope someone is left in the military who's paying attention to the criminally insane people who are taking down America. I, I, I hope someone's paying attention. I, I mean, I can't believe that uh, anyone who presents himself as a political leader could be allowed to say something like this. John Hickenlooper should be hogtied and thrown into the back of a six-by and kept there lawfully by men with guns until his trial. That's what should happen to John Hickenlooper in light of what he just said. Um, and John, I'm just going to tell you and the other kids, you better be careful. You kids better be careful with this because if you keep talking like this, you keep behaving like this, you're going to get a rise out of the people. Not everyone is hooked on your pornography and your weed and your video games. Not all of us, okay? And by us, of course, I don't mean me. I mean, uh, someone in, there are people in the military who are, going to, who are going to wake up and realize what you're doing. And you can imagine yourself face down in a six-by uh, with an M4 behind your ear, uh, Mr. Hickenlooper, until you're put on trial. And justly, um, 
sentenced to what you deserve. Imagine all the people stomping on your neck. And I'm your host, Doug McBurney. Speaking of hanging out with Janice, moving to Atlanta's John Hickenlooper. I mean, it sounds like he made up his name while in some drug-induced stupor. I shouldn't attack him for his name, but I hate him, and so I do. If I liked him more, I wouldn't mind. In fact, I'd probably compliment him on it. So from John Hickenlooper's insane, tyrannical rant, his desire to force march people into his imagined outcome, we go to the insurrection file where Canada and Ireland are uh, rolling out policies. That's what the Epic Times says. They're rolling out policies to force farmers to cut carbon emissions. What that actually means is they are... They are activating police with guns to force farmers to cut carbon emissions. That's what that means. That's what rolling out policies means. A policy is something enforced by the government at the barrel of a gun. The government's the insane, sex-pervert, tyrannical communist scum in Canada and Ireland have a goal of cutting emissions from synthetic fertilizer 30% by 2030. The thing is, though, is who's counting what's synthetic or whatever. They just say, you know what? About a third of the farms need to go. They need to all go. Uh-huh. Yes. And, of course, farmers, they say slashing fertilizer use means lower yields. And, and what's, what's synthetic fertilizer? What's organic? How do we? Well, whatever. Just shut up and get in line. Shut up and shut down your farm, Mr. Farmer, and get in the bread line. Come on. We'll have bread, plenty of bread for you. Don't worry about it. Uh, This is, uh, anyway, the downsizing of farming is occurring throughout the formerly Christian West, and it recently prompted violent protests in the Netherlands. That's where the protesters were not violent and the police were. And it led to the economic and political collapse of the entire nation of Sri Lanka. But don't worry about it. It'll be fine. And who needs food anyway? It's really overrated. Um, So we go from there to the widespread tyranny file where the Dutch farmers, by the way, that's the Netherlands for all of you who matriculated in the government schools. The Dutch government plans to cut nitrogen emissions from livestock. Livestock, I said, in half by the year 2030 to satisfy goals of the European Union's Natura 2000 scheme. It's called the scheme. That's interesting. The reporters at Breitbart. Well, that's the thing. In Europe, they just come right out and tell you, yeah, it's a scheme. You know what you're going to do. Get with the scheme. Get with the schema. Um, uh, The scheme mandates that states remove 
massive amounts of industry or farming. Uh, and then they have rules and, and, and of what and who and why. But just just pay attention to that part. The state is ordering the removal of industry and farming. And, th and then the rest of what they say doesn't really matter because that's all dicta. What matters is they're ordering the removal of industry and farming and the people are going to go along with it. That's what matters. Well, we'll see who goes along. with it. You know, the, uh, the people smoking pot and uh, downloading video games and pornography in the city, they might go along with it, but the farmers might not. We might just find out that there are still a few men with a few testicles left in Europe when people start running out of food. Maybe that'll wake them up from the THC, the video games, and the pornography when they get hungry enough. So anyway, the government out there in Holland, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the Netherlands, has said that 30% of the country's farmland should be shut down. Should be, he said. And so anything he says after that about, the, about, about certain areas that are of ecological importance and we're going to have rules and carves out, none of that matters. He says 30% of the farmlands should be shut down, which means he should be kicked in the face by someone with an army boot and the barrel of a gun shoved into his ribs. He should be hogtied and thrown somewhere and kept there until he is put on trial. That's uh, the, uh, the, the Dutch government casts the destruction of 30% of the country's farmland as an unavoidable transition. It's unavoidable. Yeah, that's, that's the way I would introduce the barrel of the gun smashing your teeth. It's, it's an unavoidable transition from you being an authoritarian maniac to you being face down in the back of a truck. <clears throat> with military men watching you until we put you on trial. Folks, the lockdowns enabled the wildest fantasies of the fascist left. It enabled them. The fascist left all dressed up in their green, ecologically concerned jackboots. And just like, uh, just like what I, what I, foresee with the future of the debate over legalized child killing in America the onslaught of the green tyranny that was enabled by the by the lockdowns you know when the government realized that the people would let them do that they decided to kill as many people as they could you know there hasn't been a bloodletting in the world for quite some time and for some reason history has proven that ambitious politicians every now and again just want to kill people and it hasn't happened in a long time, and the lockdowns have enabled the wildest fantasies of killing millions and millions and tens of millions, maybe a billion or more people in the eco-green communists. Anyway, I, see, I foresee that there will be no peaceful, civil aversion of the ecological tyranny that is about to be jackbooted down upon us. And that there is only going to be violence that throws these people off. Emboldened tyrants require persuasion by violence or the credible threat of violence. And I think the lockdowns removed from them the idea of any credible threat of violence. The dictators no longer fear the people.
and that's a very, very dangerous, volatile, horrible place to be. And I'm sorry if I scare you kids and you women. I'm, I'm very sorry. But I mean, even our side doesn't really know what's going on. For example, let's go to the justice file where Governor DeSantis was confronted with evidence that a bar that serves alcohol not only had children inside, but had children inside during a drag queen show. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. There's videos online, videos exist, showing a drag queen attempting to entertain a young girl in a bar in the state of Florida. And so what has happened? What has Ron DeSantis done? The governor, who's the chief law enforcement officer of the state of, uh, the state of Florida, he has filed a complaint, a civil complaint against the bar, giving them 21 days to respond. It's called an administrative complaint. If the bar doesn't respond or the governor doesn't view their response as adequate, they could lose their liquor license and be out of business. But no one is threatened with arrest. The chief law enforcement officer sees that a bar let in children who were then uh, uh, exposed to sex perverts in a bar and no one's going to be arrested. <clears throat> so this shows us, uh, I mean, anyway, it's more evidence for everything I've said, but it also shows us that above all, Ron DeSantis is a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Lawyers can recognize... And describe and even use the law in ways that cause the simple-minded to marvel. But they don't necessarily know right from wrong. And so for all of you in the legal profession, please keep in mind that dazzling people with your brilliance is not the point. Appearing sophisticated and, and legally well-read, legally impressive, it's, that's not the point. The point is to teach people right and wrong. And Ron DeSantis no, doesn't know right from wrong. Ron DeSantis is a lawyer, and lawyers can easily lose sight of doing right while avidly pursuing an impressive and sophisticated interpretation and application of the rules. Yeah. And, and so what I don't understand here is, despite the legalistic tendencies of the law profession in general, and despite the tendencies of politicians in general, I mean, shouldn't Ron DeSantis here be avidly applying the rules against child molestation, Child endangerment via the, I don't know, there's got to be laws on the books. You apply those rules via the local sheriff and the local prosecutor against a bar that has kids in with a bunch of sex perverts. Ronnie, help me out here, buddy. What am I missing? I know I didn't go to law school. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm remiss. Meanwhile, from the just politics file. I, I couldn't figure out whether to put this in the justice or the politics file, so it ended up in the just politics file, where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is leading the GOP charge 
against the medical transition surgeries for children. That's right. Somebody's got to stand up for us. Ron DeSantis, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. So DeSantis said during a press conference last week that doctors who perform transgender surgery on very young kids should be held legally liable for their actions, at which point normal adult fathers like me took notice and said, all right, someone's going to finally start arresting these perverts who are, who are mutilating children, mutilating them. Uh, what, what Ron DeSantis went on to say, well, to clarify, was that he said, I think, I think, I think these doctors need to get sued for what's happening. Sued. So that's how legally illiterate even the greatest conservative leader on our side is. I mean, had FDR or JFK or LBJ found out that someone in their jurisdiction was mutilating children and trying to turn them from boys into girls, they would have had them arrested. And, and if they'd have found out that, that a politician there, an elected official, wasn't doing that, FDR, JFK, and LBJ would have insisted that that politician be run out of town on a rail, run out of office for being some kind of radical, criminally insane, perverted liberal. But that's the guy who's leading our side, which, I mean, you know, people say I'm too pessimistic. All right. Hey, I'm just pointing out reality. And if it makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. Nobody ever promised that you were going to be comfortable. And uh, nowhere in the Bible are we promised that we're not going to suffer, even for the sins of other people. It's called reality. And God made it in order to check naked ambition and sin and bloodlust. And the system can be very, very brutal in its judgments against everyone. If enough people are allowed to rage out of control for long enough, everybody gets hurt. In fact, now let me just put the cherry on top here. We'll go to the bad religion file. Where 80, listen to the, the banner headline in the Christian Post. You think there's no hope, America? There is. 80 religious and conservative groups have written a letter urging the Senate to oppose the gay marriage bill. That's right, there's a bill in the Congress that's called the Respect for Marriage Act. Why? Because the faggots and the creeps and the weirdos who go for that sort of thing are all worried that now that the court has overturned Roe, they might overturn Obergefell and... and homosexual quote-unquote marriage so they want to pass a bill that says we'll always have queers getting married no matter what come hellfire or damnation right come fire from heaven we're still gonna have it no matter what that's that's what the bill says i think i think that's word for word anyway so a group of 80 religious conservatives groups right the pro family industry i call them They've written a letter urging the Senate not to codify by, by law homosexual marriage. Why? The 80 religious and conservative groups say that the bill was rushed through the House without any public hearings or input. That's right. Mm -hmm. They say that, uh, by the way, they say this bill that, that they want you to vote, it does nothing to change the status of same-sex marriage. But it does much to endanger the people of faith. So it does nothing 
to change the status of same-sex marriage, which is homosexual marriage, which is perverted, corrupt, defiled, abhorrent marriage. It does nothing to change it. Then why are you telling them to vote against it? And why are you happy that it does nothing to change anything? And why are you saying that the reason you opposed it was, well, there wasn't any public hearings or input. Are there public hearings or input that would change your mind about marriage, Mr. 80 religious conservative groups and leaders in the pro-family industry? Is that what you're saying? Folks, the Christian leaders endorse doing nothing to change the legality of homo marriage. The, the shepherds have either lost their way, or they are wolves. Uh-huh. And perhaps the pro-life industry lost its way 30 years ago and is now actually run by wolves in shepherd's clothing. Because, folks, if the Christians don't defend God's institution of marriage, then the state will simply continue to ravage it and defile it. And if our conservative Christian leaders who lead our so-called pro-family organizations can't just come out and say, well, we want to protect marriage because God said marriage is this. It's a man and a woman. It's not two weirdos in the back of a bar. If our Christian leaders can't, if they just can't come out and, and see that, then like I said before, color me Isaiah. And we're coming back because we got to get to the end of the world file. The end of the world file. Where uh, the Federalist reports that Jeanette Cooper, a mom in Chicago, has missed her daughter's 13th, 14th, and 15th birthdays. She lost custody of her daughter after refusing to go along with her daughter Sophia's belief that she is transgender. So I'm reading this article and I already I realize that, so this is from the Federalist, and I'm wondering, are the urinalists calling her son her daughter? Or is she, is she refusing to believe her daughter that she's acting like her son? Already it's confusing. Because we don't know anymore. Because even the so-called right-wing media urinalists go along with this gender-bending insanity. So they go along, and so we'll have to find out if it's Sophia or is it Frank. We'll have to find out at the end of the article, maybe. The Federalist says when Sophia was 12, Mom, Jeanette, went to pick her up from a custodial visit with her father, but her daughter refused to come home. And that's when Mom learned that Sophia, who... now identified as transgender and felt unsafe around her mom. So we know that the the teenager has mental problems by this time in the story, 
but we don't yet know what actual sex the teenager is at this point in the uh, in the article, which is a little uncomfortable for me, but I'm going to keep going. So uh, she doesn't want to go home with mom. She feels unsafe around her mom because her mom always thought she came across as more feminine. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, yeah. I, I, I now I'm confused even more. I don't want to confuse you anymore. Anyway, the court there in Illinois uh, wants mom to have, there's a certain understanding. They want mom to have a certain understanding that there is such a thing as a child who is born transgender and this is who they are. So the court has ordered the mother to recognize the transgenderness of her child. And <clears throat> she said, uh, I, I took an oath in the courtroom to tell the, the truth. And the truth is, my child is a girl. Oh, thank you. Okay. Okay, so the Federalist wasn't going along. Okay, that's nice. Okay, she says, the truth is, my, my child is a girl, and I won't lie to her or anyone else. Oh, so that's why the girl felt uncomfortable. The mom always thought the daughter was feminine. Isn't that weird? The mom would think her daughter was feminine? Normally, moms don't even think about whether or not their daughter is feminine or masculine, or they just don't get confused about that type of thing, but we don't live in a sane world anymore, so moms and daughters are... They're just a mess. So the mom refuses to lie in court, and so the court rules against the mom. Um, <clears throat> the mom, Jeanette, had to sign a new parenting agreement under the supervision of the court in return for giving up her ability to spend time with her daughter. She negotiated that Sophia will not be medically transitioned without a court order or mom's permission. That was the best mom could do. Since she wouldn't lie, her child was taken from her. And the only thing they promised to do was not mutilate her without at least going to court again. I mean, we all need to be reasonable about this, don't we? And so you read the whole article. We thank the reporters for finally the big reveal <laughs> there in the middle of the article that the child is actually a girl. We appreciate that. But the question you might ask is, where's dad? Well, first of all, you're not allowed to ask that. You're mean. Are you trying to hurt people's feelings? Are you trying to make people uncomfortable by bringing up, like, where is dad? How is that going to help? Anyway, dad and mom are divorced. Obviously. And the court allowed Sophia to stay with dad because the court, Sophia told the court that she felt safer with her dad. And so, what do you think, folks? Do you suppose that Dad really thinks that his daughter Sophia is a boy? Do you think that's what Dad thinks? Or is it possible that Dad really just hates Mom? And Dad will do just about anything to get back at Mom or to make the child like him more than his mom. And if that means assenting to the idea that Sophia is a boy, yeah, Dad's just going to go along with that because it really hurts Mom who he hates. So if we could ask Sophia what the real problem is, Sophia would say, Dad hates Mom. And Mom hates Dad. That's my real problem. That's Sophia's real problem. And it's, it's epidemic. 
I feel for the child at this point. I mean, you hear me laugh, you hear me make fun, but in the end, that that poor child is being abused by not just both her parents, and that's just an ancillary abuse. That wasn't even intentional on either one of their parts. That's just the reality. Despite the fact that nobody wants to hurt Sophia's feelings in the divorce, both of them end up destroying her. But they didn't even mean it. They didn't know. Because the court, and probably at church, they heard, it, it'll be okay. You can get a divorce. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We'll have counselors. We'll help your kids through it. You can share custody. It'll be good. And then you can go on and, and marry other people. And your kids will be fine with all that. Don't worry. Millions and millions of people have done it. And look around at society. Everything's great. Don't you worry your little head, Mom, Dad. The important thing is that you're happy. Are you unhappy? Well, you shouldn't be unhappy. So I feel for the kid. And it's about time for parents and, and mostly the church to wake up and say, you know what? You can't get divorced and everything's going to be okay. No, you're going to suffer. Your children are going to suffer. You're going to be diminished and defiled. That's what it's all about. That's real. Oh, that makes you uncomfortable? I'm so sorry. Gee, I'd rather you be comfortable and your child have her entire life destroyed to the point where she wants to mutilate herself and maybe even kill herself. That's, but you know, the important thing for the church is that, you know, the people writing the checks on, on Sunday, you know, putting it in the, putting it in the collection plate, the important thing is that they're happy. All right, well, let's move on. We do need some good news. So let's go to Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh was a quarterback for the Chicago Bears way back when I used to watch football. Uh, he was speaking at the July 17th Plymouth Right to Life dinner at St. John's Church in Plymouth, Michigan. And he talked about the issue of child killing, and he said he's against it. He says, my faith and science are what drive these beliefs in me. He says, I tell my kids, my children, the same thing I tell the players on my football team, the staff members on my football team. I encourage them that if they have a pregnancy that wasn't planned, to go through with it. Go through with it. He says, let that baby be born. Let that unborn child be born, and if you don't feel like you can take care of it, if you don't have the means, if you don't have the wherewithal, then my wife Sarah and I will take that baby. How about that? How does the left argue with that guy? He says, okay, how about this? If you don't kill it, I'll take the baby. They hate to hear that. They hate him for that. In fact, even the people on the, even the pro-lifers hate him for that. Because they've all become pro-abortion, with some exceptions. Oh, I shouldn't say that last part. I shouldn't say that last part about the pro-life movement. I'm sorry. The pro-life movement doesn't yet hate people who say, don't kill the baby, I'll take it. So sometimes my pessimism runs too deep. So we're not there yet. The pro-life movement only says, look, the right to life, the unalienable right to life is unreasonable. It's radical. And so, you know, some kids are going to be killed, but, you know, let's be reasonable about it. And so I suppose, I suppose even in the pro-life industry, they'd still be okay with Coach Harbaugh adopting a single mom's baby. They, they're not going to vote for that yet. 
We're not that far down the rat hole. But I mean, once you abandon the unalienable right to life, how far could it go? Could it be that someday the pro-life industry will tell Coach Harbaugh, look, that's unreasonable. We've made a deal. We've got a new law. We've got a new law to take care of the kids that slip through the cracks and end up being born. I don't I know. I know. Maybe I'm too pessimistic. But just I like to think these things through to their, to their logical, spiritual, moral conclusion. And so let's see. What, what can I do now? Here, let's do some good news. All right, you want some good news? Here from the Ray of Hope file. There is a perinatal revolution occurring in medicine. One of the greatest advances in patient care in the past few decades is occurring in the neonatal units across America. Sam Armas. Do you remember Samuel Armas in 1999? That was when I first went on the radio. 1999. There was a picture of tiny Samuel's fist grasping the finger of the surgeon who was performing a life-saving surgery for Samuel in the womb of his mother. That picture shocked the world. I remember. Um, That picture, more than anything else, solidified Matt Drudge for decades in the conservative movement, despite the fact that he wasn't a conservative. Matt Drudge simply realized that that picture was amazing. And it proved that that child inside that woman, that wasn't a blob of tissue or anything else. That was a person. And so Matt Drudge put the picture up for the whole world to see. And it rocked the world, shook the world. Well, that wasn't the end of Samuel, by the way. He was born. And he's a grown man now. And there are pictures of him that can be seen on a website that's been maintained by the photographer who took the original picture, Michael Clancy. I'll put a link so you can take a look. Turns out it was a person. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, surgeries to repair spina bifida. Surgeries for the management of myeloma meningococcal. I I can't even read this, this disease, but it's called MOMS for short. Um, Twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome surgery has been successfully performed now as early as 15 weeks with fetoscopic laser ablation. So they're performing laser surgery on fetuses at 15 weeks. And not only are the children surviving, but there are clinically significant improvements in outcomes that are measurable. Anyway, these type of procedures have contributed, according to the Federalist, have contributed to the abolition of the viability standard of 24 to 28 weeks that was cited in the Roe v. Wade decision. Babies born at even 21 weeks are surviving. 21 weeks! That's barely halfway through the pregnancy. The number of fetal care centers and maternal fetal specialists has exploded across the nation. The centers are located in 21 states, 31 cities. So there is a revolution occurring. And by the way, I said, I think back around 2009, 10, when we first started working on trying to change the law to 
reestablish the legal personhood of the unborn child. I was a part of a political campaign to do that. Back then I said, if we can change the law, this will change hearts and minds and there will be a revolution. And someday we'll be able to transfer a distressed blastocyst. Someday we'll be able to transfer a distressed blastocyst into an artificial environment where it can grow into a full baby. We could do that if we wanted to. That's what I predicted back then. Well, it hasn't. We haven't changed the law. Like I said, three times we went to the people, three times they rejected it. At this point, I'm kind of done with politics. I'm just, um, uh, I'm just a voice in the wilderness crying out. Repent. All right, so... But isn't that fantastic news that these surgeries are proving, proving the, uh, the life of the child is sacred and it's important, it's valuable to God. And uh, can you imagine what it must feel like to be a doctor who saves the life of, I mean, I mean, the doctor who took the pic, the doctor who was in the picture 20 years later, can you imagine? You meet the kid, he's now 23 years old, 22, 23 years old. It's got to be pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Okay, uh, do I don't know if I can do any more. I have a lot of distressing news about crime and uh, gender clinics and puberty blockers and the end of the world and all of that. Um, <clears throat> uh, but but uh, maybe we'll close with, um, oh, I can't do that. Hold on, folks. Bear with me. Uh, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do one justice story and one pop culture. It's not a pop culture. It's a snap, crackle, pop culture story. And then that'll be the end of the show. It's been a long enough show, anyways. We'll go to the justice file. I'm sorry. This is the bad religion file. The just a bad religion file, where Nathan James was executed last Thursday night in Alabama. Uh, it's a good news, bad news story. That's the good news. Nathan James was executed last Thursday. In 1994, almost 30 years ago, James shot and killed 26-year-old Faith Hall after she broke off a relationship with him. Hall was the mother of two daughters at the time. They were three and six years old at the time of her murder. Uh, there's no mention of the dysfunction already obvious in this story right there. Why does... Why does a mom of two have a boyfriend and not a husband? Oh, you're not allowed to ask that. Are you being mean? Are you trying to make us uncomfortable? Uh-huh. Where's dad is not allowed. That's mean. Uh, so anyway, I'm just wondering at this point, where's dad? But okay. So anyway, the, the mom of two has a fling with a guy who's a creep. He kills her. That's 30 years ago because the wheels of justice grind slowly. Now the two daughters are fully grown and the daughters of the murder victim have lobbied for the murderer's life to be spared. They don't want the execution to go forward. That's according to Tara Lynn Hall. The other daughter, Tony, says an eye for an eye has never been a good outlook for life. Yeah, an eye for an eye is never. Um... Let's see. Then now the Breitbart author starts to uh, editorialize. The urinalist starts to speak. And the urinalist at Breitbart says, We all give great credit to the victim's daughters that they've forgiven their mother's killer and moved on. Just forgive and move on. 
Yes, living with hate and vengeance is no way to live. These are admirable women who should be applauded for their great wonderfulness and fabulousness, superiority to the rest of us. And then the urinalist says, nevertheless, it should not be up to the victims or the victim's family to decide punishment. And then he goes, blah, 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 on about how the system is, we need to manage the justice system, and we have a system in place for this, and there's a system. We have lawyers and judges and juries, and they're sacred, and our system is sacred, and that's what that, blah, 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 blah. The urinalist then vomits out talking points about the wonderful system and the lawyers who run it. But the fact is, the, the victim should be heard. Uh-huh. These two women should be heard. They should then be corrected. Yes, we should hear them, but then we should correct them and tell them that it's not right to forgive the unrepentant murderer. This murderer would never admit that he did it, yet they're going to forgive him. Okay, so that so we can hear the victims, these wonderful, beautiful women, and then we can correct them. So don't forgive an unrepentant murderer. And then, by the way, don't blaspheme God. Okay? Don't blaspheme God by saying an eye for an eye. Has never been a good outlook on life because God said an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, when he instigated justice upon the vicious and the killers like the one who killed your mom. He knew that if you put the fear of God in them and the fear of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and cut for cut and burn for burn and life for life, if you put that fear in them, your mom might be alive. So don't blaspheme God. There, we've heard the victims. They're wonderful, awesome, beautiful women. We've heard them and we've corrected them. And finally, uh, to the journalist at uh, Breitbart, a good measure of the punishment should be up to the victim's family. Yes, despite your worship of our system, um, if, if, if the system were corrected, Mr. Urinalist, what does he say here? Living with hate and vengeance is no way to live. Okay, so you can't live with vengeance. You can live with hate. But you can't live with vengeance. Yeah, vengeance is what happens to relieve your hate. Once you've executed vengeance, you no longer live with hate. Uh, but the idea of living with vengeance just shows that you're relatively illiterate. Um, and, Mr. Urinalist at Breitbart, if you want to rid society of lives spent living with hatred... Well, then provide for a speedy execution with the victims rendering the mechanism of death upon the criminal. Let the families of the victim actually kill him. Then there will be no more need for hatred and everyone can get over all the bad feelings surrounding the murder of their loved one. Oh, that's so mean. You're making us all very uncomfortable. Oh, no, I'm sorry if I make you uncomfortable. I'm not sorry. I think at this point in the decline and fall of Western civilization, my primary role may just be to make people uncomfortable. I, I've spent enough time making you laugh. It's now time to make you feel uncomfortable. Although I will try to make you laugh along the way. In fact, let's go to the Snap, Crackle, and Pop Culture file where Brooke Shields is in the news, surprisingly. Haven't heard from her in a while. Let's delve into exactly why that is. At least in the mind of Brooke Shields, she did an interview with a lackey of Oprah Winfrey on Oprah Daily, which means not actually Oprah. She said that once a woman in show business is over 40, Brooke Shields says she's put out to pasture. And 57-year-old Brooke is upset about that. 
as well Oprah might be now that Oprah's out. Oprah must be out to pasture as well. Maybe that's why the interview wasn't with Oprah herself. It was with Gail King. Gail not yet out to pasture, I suppose. Anyway, Brooks says, we're told that you're too old or your ovaries are no longer going to make the world continue. So we're just going to kind of lump you over there. You've had a good run. Thank you. She admits that she never thought about it in her 20s when she was parading around being filmed undressing in front of other people. She thought that people would be interested in her, interested in her forever as she was being paid to strip on camera. Now that she's past 50, she feels like, quote, nobody is talking to me, <laughs> unquote. That's um, says she didn't think to question it when she was in her 20s stripping for money. But now that she's past 50, she says, well, wait a minute. They're overlooking me. Nobody's talking to me. Well, replace two uh, be, uh, with about. So Brooke is concerned that nobody's talking about her, not that nobody's talking to her. Because anyway, as long as the checks came through, it didn't seem to matter that much, Brooke. But uh, anyway, if you didn't realize by the time you're 27, Brooke, that they were really just paying you to strip on camera, they weren't that interested in you, then maybe you are uh, an airhead. Anyway, and you should realize by the time you're 50, Brooke, that it's your two kids that matter. doesn't matter who's talking to you. doesn't matter who's talking about you. doesn't matter who wants to film you taking your clothes off. That doesn't matter anymore. You have two kids. What matters is, do they want to talk to you? Do they want to talk about you? How do they look at you? How do they view you? That's what really matters, Brooke. So, and if you haven't figured that out, I just feel sorry for you. It's just sad. Um, and that's the snap, crackle, and pop culture life. It's kind of sad ending all the way around. All right. That's it for the weekly review. I want to thank my friends at Real Science Radio and my other brother, Daryl, who I know is still listening. Or I know he'll listen eventually. And so uh, should, should Lord Terry will return next week. And until then, may the grace of God go with you. And may the peace of Jesus Christ be upon you.